0: Our scripture this morning is from Romans chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 4. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the Word of the Lord.:
1: Well, welcome to Sojourn. Church is the people of God gathered together. We are built from the Word of God up, and it is a mercy that we get to hear God's Word again this morning. Uh, we are now crossing over Romans to, from Romans 9 to Romans 10. It's a tremendous uh, book we get to keep trekking in. So even though we're finishing a big chapter, we keep, we keep moving and we're going in chapter 10, and, and there's more goodness to come. Why don't we just stop and pray as we prepare to hear uh, from God's Word. Father, it, You have so clearly said in Your Word that your presence is in the midst of your people, and so it's good for us to just pause for just a second and know that you are meeting us here and now. What a mercy. And as you meet us, God, would you, would you speak? And may we listen. And may we be quick to move those words from the ear to our hearts, from our hearts to our lives. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Uh, Paul's ministry was once described as a ministry in the book of Acts that turned the world upside down. That's quite the ministry, it's quite the, quite the uh, way to describe a ministry, like it turned the world upside down. How did he do this? What was this ministry that was turning the world upside down? It, it wasn't a ministry, although this did happen in Paul's ministry, it wasn't a ministry of miraculous signs and wonders and healings. That wasn't what they were speaking of, was turning the world upside down. It wasn't a ministry where, where there's a tremendous amount of power being displayed in his eloquence and speaking, although there was some times of that too. No, no, what they were saying was that his ministry that was turning the world upside down was a gospel ministry, the gospel word of the gospel was going out, and that word of the gospel was so radically altering the, the people that he was speaking to and different places that he was going, that people could look at it from the outside as they were when they said this and saying, something different is going on here. It's as if the world is being flipped upside down in its hearing of this gospel. And it's the same gospel that Paul writes of in the book of Romans. The gospel of God, the gospel that says that salvation, this gospel is, is power, it, it declares that salvation from God is available through faith. It's power of God for salvation to everyone who believes right standing with God is available through faith. It was a gospel that was confounding the wisdom of the world, confounding the power of the world, confounding the might of, its, of the world in its working And part of this confounding power of the gospel was that it was going out to those who seemed far off, those who looked like they were distant from God, and it was drawing them near and saying, you're beloved children of the one true living God. And that number was primarily Gentiles. They were responding to the gospel in large numbers. But the Jews were by and large, during Paul's ministry, rejecting that gospel which raised all kinds of questions. Why, Paul? Why? God's covenant people, the the people that we see uh, received promises in the law. Why? Why are they not coming in? Why, by and large, are they rejecting the gospel and Gentiles coming in in large numbers? And Paul has been setting out to answer that question in chapter 9, largely. And not just chapter 9, but chapter 9 and 10 and 11. And as he answers, here's what he answers. He he shows in the answer his desire for them, what he wants from them, but he shows what they're stumbling over and shows kind of the solution in the stumbling and also a stumbling stone that they can look to. And so in other words, what Paul is going to answer here at the end of chapter 9, start of 10, is he's going to desire, he's showing his desire that highlights the the problem that they are cut off from salvation by and large, and he shows their stumbling, why they're stumbling, and, and he shows the solution to their stumbling in the stumbling stone himself. So this passage in the end of chapter 9 the start of chapter 10 it is parallel kind of on both sides of chapter 10, verse 1. But he starts to put the problem in view with that verse, chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, this is for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. Israel, the same Israel that he spoke of in verses 4 and 5, these this were the Israelites who belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from the race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, those Israelites. And those Israelites, by and large, were people, as of Paul's writing in the book of Romans, were not saved. That's what he's getting at here. He wants them to be saved because they're not In verse 31 of chapter 9, they're not attaining righteousness. So the the issue, the problem that Paul has been discussing in all chapter 9 for the Israelites is that it's not a a national thing, it's an individuals are cut off from salvation thing. That's why Paul had, as he says in chapter 9 verse 2, great sorrow. Because they're cut off from God. That's why he has unceasing anguish, because individuals that are Israelites, that he knows, that he's looked in the face and preached to, have rejected the gospel and are cut off and unsaved. Look at what Paul's desire is for them, though. Paul's very, very, very clear here. This is where the sorrow comes from, the unceasing anguish of earlier in chapter 9. His desire is they be saved. Now, that didn't sound shocking to any of us, right? But that desire is a gospel-soaked desire. Do you remember Paul's former life? What what did he do with those who opposed his mission? Paul is an Israelite. And he is setting out to be zealous for the things of God. And so zealous was he for the things of God that anything that would come up and would rival God was something that needed to be destroyed and teared down. And here comes Jesus. He sets himself up as God. And this is offensive to Paul. And here's this church. They're going forward and they're saying Jesus is Lord. They're claiming in the spot of what only what God should be claiming. They're claiming is true for them. And so what does he do with those who oppose his mission? He goes after it to destroy it. He gets hold of those who are opposing his mission. He arrests them. He destroys them. He even approves of their murder. And then what happened to Paul? Paul... Well, God got a hold of him. Christ arrested him. And he sends him out as a new creation. And this new creation in Christ Jesus, who we know as Paul, was sent out as an ambassador for Christ, proclaiming and pleading with people, be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. His pattern then, once he was transformed by the goodness of the gospel himself, was to go into all these places, and when he'd go to these places, if they had a synagogue, most often he would go there first. He would go to these people that were kind of the the promised people of God, and he'd go there first. Also, as his fellow Israelites, he'd go speak to them first. And It was in those places where Paul met his biggest opponents. This is just a sample, but let's think through the book of Acts for a second. In Acts chapter 13, verse 45, When the Jews saw the crowds that were hearing, they gathered to hear the word of the Lord, verse 44. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Or skip down to verse 50 of chapter 13. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district. It doesn't get easier for Paul as he travels around. Look in chapter 14, verse 2. The unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And this is what it led to, verse 5. An attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. Chapter 14, you go down a little bit further. Again, things aren't getting easier for Paul. Verse 19, he's at Lystra. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. Chapter 17, verse 5, he's in Thessalonica. The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Verse 13, he moves on, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of the Lord was proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. In chapter 18, verse 12, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and they brought him before the tribunal. I mean, everywhere he goes, he's trying to proclaim to them, be reconciled to God. And they try to take him out. Betrayal of his own kinsmen. He probably felt betrayed and abandoned, alone. And likely, there's many times when he felt angry. How could I receive this from those who are supposed to be the promised people of God? from those who I can relate to. I was them. I, I, I know what they're in. And I bet he went with some tenderness and some compassion as he's proclaiming the word, and yet he's treated like this. For most people, it would have taken much, much less than any of those episodes in Paul to become an enemy with somebody. If someone does even the slightest of any of those things I read in Acts, like, probably I'm going to count them as an enemy in my life. I'm going to cut off relations from them. I'm going to start being unfeeling towards them. Maybe even positively feeling in a negative direction toward them. Hate. You might read that into the book of Acts and think like, man, Paul be done with them. Cut them off. Stop messing around with them. Like, maybe even get revenge on them. But Paul received mercy. And actually, Paul no longer lived. But the life he lived was the life of Christ lived in and through him. And the life of Christ that lived in him was the same life that said when people were putting him to death on the cross, that said, Father, forgive them, that kind of heart, this kind of heart that now beats in Paul's chest, that life of Christ pulsed in him, and that life of Christ that pulsed in him moved him to desire the salvation of those who desired for his demise. He wanted their life, and they wanted his death. And those were going on at the same time. He wants them to be saved. He wants them. He knows what this means, right? To be brothers, to be reconciled not just to Christ, but to be one, reconciled to one another. And not just for a temporary amount of time. He wants them eternally with him as family. That's what he's saying when he says, I desire that they be saved. I want them with me forever. What a reflection of the heart of Christ. That didn't come out of nowhere. This is gospel-soaked desire, and it's not unique to Paul in the slightest. It's all over the pages of the New Testament. You see those who are enemies now all of a sudden shift their desires toward other people. It's all through the pages of Christian history. You see those who are radically opposed to one another all of a sudden be reconciled to one another in Christ Jesus. And if we're in Christ, then Christ's very life pulses in us and through us, and his heartbeat now should be our heartbeat, moving us to desire that those around us, even those they might be our enemy and betray us and abandon us, we desire their salvation. And what does Paul do with this desire here? Chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire is that they be saved, but it's not just a desire, it's his heart's desire and prayer. What does he do with that desire? He prays it, gives it over to the Lord. Their red-hot rejection of Paul led to him, not to him giving up on them, but to him praying for them. They had cast him off and tried to destroy them, and he goes to the Father in heaven and says, save them. Maybe we need to hear that for some that we've maybe given up on around us. We need to hear that the desire still should be for their salvation. And what do we need to do with their desire that desire? We need to pray it. And chapter nine of the book of Romans actually helps this kind of prayer. Now, after a chapter, chapter nine, right? You, if you've been with us, you know this, after a chapter. Of, of eternal purposes of God, of God's calling, of his sovereign freedom as God to be God, that he is the potter and, and everything else is the clay and he can harden whom he will and have mercy on whom he will. Here's what Paul does after that chapter is he doesn't just sit and be silent. He doesn't do nothing. He has desires for salvation for people that had rejected him and been his enemies and he prays. Paul has a clear understanding here in chapter 10 verse 1 of God's purpose of election, that he hardens whom he wills and has mercy on whom he wills, and he goes out and he preaches be reconciled to God. Paul has a high view of the sovereignty of God and his calling, and that he is the only one. It's not by chapter 9 verse 16, not by human will or exertion, but on the God who has mercy. He has a high view of that, and he prays. Those aren't incompatible things then for Paul. The the, the high view of the eternal purposes of God and his purpose of election, his calling, his sovereignty, don't go against, in Paul's mind, praying, preaching, living with the very heart of Christ in me, moving out toward people. They're not incompatible. Paul, here, as he prays that they might be saved, isn't doing anything out of the ordinary, he's just being faithful. This is what it looks like to hold rightly the doctrines taught in Romans 9, and all of the book of Romans, especially chapter 9, and then to live them out. It looks like this. My desire is that they be saved, and I pray that they will be. This always leads to some mystery, right, and some questions. Like, why, why should we pray if God harms whom he wills and he has mercy on whom he wills? Why should we pray if he's sovereign over all things? And it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on the God who has mercy. Why should we pray if that's true? I think a better question actually is why pray if he's not, but we'll get to that. Why pray if God is sovereign? Because God is sovereign over both the ends and the means, right? And he appoints both of those things. And, and so the ways that he gets to the end are the means. And here's what he's appointed as the means for people to be saved. He has said, pray for them. Pray without ceasing. Paul is just reflecting the very heart that God wants him to live out. That men be saved. And so he prays for them. He has God's purposes in mind. God's purposes to save. That's the end. And God uses the means to get there. And some of the means, part of the means is prayer. So what you see here is a a right doctrine, right truth from the scripture, from Romans 9, from the sovereignty of God. What is it doing? It's fueling prayer. It doesn't cut off prayer at all. It fuels prayer. Always, this is what should be happening in the scripture. When we see right truth, right doctrine, it should always lead to right living. That's how you hold right doctrine. If you have right doctrine and not right living, you actually don't have right doctrine orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy like right doctrine leads to right living a right holding then of god's sovereignty and his eternal purposes his purpose of election and his calling should lead then to the right practice of prayer for salvation for those who don't have it and again the question isn't it's a good question it's a hard question why pray if god is sovereign but a better question is why pray if he's not There would be no reason to pray to God if God weren't sovereign and if he weren't sovereign over salvation. Why are you going to talk to him about it if he can't do anything about it? What could he do? I desire that they be saved. I mean, I guess he could be a listening ear. That's kind of God. Why pray if he's not sovereign? What could he do? But God is sovereign and God has ordained prayer as a means of accomplishing the end of salvation. I think of Ananias like God tells him something to do. He's praying for Paul, right? It's like the end is that you go help Paul, but the way you get there is you pray and I tell you and move you and send you. God has ordained prayer as a means of accomplishing his end. He is sovereign, and he hardens whom he wills and has mercy on whom he wills, and it doesn't depend on human will or exertion. It depends on God. And so what should we do with that reality? Pray. We should pray. And we should not just pray. Pray with confidence. This is the God who is sovereign over salvation. He can actually affect this thing. And so we pray to him as God who loves to hear his children's prayers and has appointed those means for the end of accomplishing his purposes. And so Paul, he he looks out at at Israel's spiritual state, and he desires their salvation because the heart of Christ is pulsing in him and through him, and he sees that salvation in them, by and large, is lacking, and so what does he do? He prays. And then he's going to tell us, he's going to try to explain their spiritual state. What explains that they're so far off? And he gives an account of why Gentiles are pouring in and why the Jews aren't, and that's going to take us all the way through chapter 11. Listen to chapter 9, verse 30, though. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? He picks up the question here. Now, he's looking out and he knows not all Gentiles had attained righteousness. So, again, you can't read that into there. It's not like every single one had received and attained righteousness. But we can say of all of them, they weren't pursuing it. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians, that the gospel was folly to the Gentiles. But they are still, as those could be labeled under uh, Romans 1, 18, they, they are those who are serving created things, not the Creator. They're not pursuing righteousness. They're worshiping idols. They think that this message of the gospel is foolish. Like, that's something to be ashamed of, that someone would even care to follow that thing. That's what the Gentiles thought of it. But how did then they attain it? God's purpose of election, that he would take a people who are not called my people and make them my people. That's what he's already said in chapter 9, that he would make a people that were unloved, loved. It's God's purposes that are at work here, that any Gentiles would obtain this righteousness. They were those who were called. Chapter 9, verse 24, he's called. Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And that calling is not a flimsy word, it's an effective word. Gentiles who were called, here's what they did, they responded to the call and they attained salvation, they attained righteousness, the only possible way there is to attain righteousness. And what is that? They received it by faith. The gospel reveals that righteousness, the righteousness of God is available. And it's a righteousness that's received by faith. Right, Chapter 1, verse 16, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, how you can have right standing with God is revealed from faith for faith, it's about faith. Or we could look back in chapter 3, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Amen. You want right standing with God. You want the righteousness of God. Paul says be reconciled to God by faith in Christ. And as the gospel went out, the Gentiles who weren't seeking for righteousness with God were receiving it by faith. That same thing couldn't be said, by and large, of Israel. He says in verse 31, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching it. Israel pursued, he says, a law that would lead to righteousness. That law is a law that demands righteousness. And here's what they did with that. They pursued that righteousness, and they pursued the law for that righteousness. These verses... 30, 31, they're paralleled in chapter 10. As I said, these correspond to one another. And and look at the corresponding verse in chapter 10, verse 2. Helps explain what 31 is doing. Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal. They pursued righteousness. There's their zeal. They pursued righteousness. And so Israel, verse 31, they pursued righteousness. Righteousness, 10, 2, they have a zeal for God. All those sound really good, right? But Paul gets at the problem. Look at the end of verse 2, chapter 10. They didn't do it according to knowledge. And then he says in verse 3, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. But pursuing a righteousness... Having a zeal for God but not a zeal according to knowledge is a seeking to establish one's own righteousness. And even that, trying to establish your own righteousness, pursuing righteousness, having a zeal for God, those all sound really commendable, don't they? They likely sound pretty good to our ears. What's so bad about that? The law even is A good way to pursue it. You would think even the means they're pursuing this righteousness is good. He said in chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is holy and righteous and good. And they're seeking a righteousness by that law. What's so bad about this? You even think about the law. What is the law stating? Even if they outwardly kept the law, isn't that kind of a good thing, right? The law is summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor. So if they're pursuing those things, doesn't that seem like even if it's just outward, that's a good thing? Well, look at what Paul concludes about it. In verse 3, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And in that, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And in verse 3, it corresponds with chapter 9, verse 32. And why didn't they reach this righteousness? Well, verse 32 says, because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That's why. Paul is going to state it right here. Verse 3, verse 32, he states it really bluntly. Their establishing their own righteousness was a lack of submission to God's righteousness. That's what was going on there. Their attempt to establish their own righteousness was a rejection of God's righteousness. And we could go a little bit further and say it was rebellion against God's righteousness. Think of Paul's life. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, he tells about his own life. When he says that I have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law Pharisee, and as to zeal, persecutor as the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was pursuing a righteousness by the law. He says, blameless. But in Acts chapter 9, when righteousness appeared to him, All was counted loss. His zeal for God and his pursuit to establish his own righteousness failed him and left him before the one true living God, bankrupt. And he falls down before Jesus, who questions him, and he falls down underneath that question, guilty as a rebel before him. His pursuit of righteousness and zeal for God was not then just a good try. It was not just kind of morally neutral. It was utterly condemnable. It was rebellion and rejection of the one true living God. It was a stiff arm to him. This was Paul's stumbling. And he says, that's actually Israel's stumbling too. That before Acts chapter 9... And as Paul looks around the current spiritual state of Israel, he writes of here, he says, that's their stumbling. That one of the greatest obstacles to receiving God's righteousness is a seeking to establish one's own. The, the chief obstacle, one of the chief obstacles in achieving the righteousness, attaining the righteousness of God is in looking to your works to achieve that. We can say it this way, one of the greatest hindrances for all of us to obtaining right standing with God is trust in one's own righteousness. That is what Paul says is happening amongst the, the Israelites of his day. But that, friends, is a common to man kind of stumbling to watch out for. And my concern is that many stumble right here at this point. Establishing our own righteousness is attempted in so many ways. It shows up in, in all kinds of things. Like it's seen when someone's asked, or when you are asked, how are you doing? Think about a home group setting, or maybe a Sunday morning, someone says, how are you doing? What do you then turn to to answer? Let, let me just, an experience for like over the course of my Christian life, we normally will turn to a few kinds of things, Right? A lot of them have to do with spiritual disciplines. How are you doing? Well, I'm reading my Bible, or I'm praying a lot, or something along the lines of that, right? What is that? How are you doing? You're basing it on your own efforts. You're seeking possibly to establish, that might show how you're seeking to establish your own righteousness. Or you might go the other way and say, actually, man, I haven't been reading my Bible much lately. I haven't been praying much lately, but I want to. So what are you doing there? Here's my righteousness, not my actual works, my desires. That's my righteousness, right? I want good things. That shows that I can have right standing with God, right? Or maybe we think it's it's the time of graduations and the ends of things and award ceremonies. We think of momentous occasions. And oftentimes I've found myself at those kind of places and think, man, I kind of wish I would have done better. So maybe I could have gotten that award that so-and-so got, but, but I also like have the resolve often like, I'm going to do better next time, right? I'm going to get better at this. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to go get it. And we do that, don't we? we? We look at righteousness from God and we think, I'm going to do better. I'm going to go establish that righteousness. We look to ourselves or so we think about death and funerals, These are times when, because we bear the image of God, we know that it is appointed for every man, this Hebrew says this, but we know this like just intuitively, that it is appointed for every man to die once, live and die once, and then after that comes judgment. And what happens in those places when you're faced with that actual reality of death and thinking of your own funeral? There's an internal kind of conversation going on then. What does that internal conversation look like? That might tell you how you're seeking to establish your own righteousness. Oftentimes, you might come to the defense of yourself when you're thinking like, if it's appointed for me to die and then after that comes judgment, then then I start to raise the defense. This inner lawyer in me starts chiming up and it starts saying all the reasons why I am defendable on that day. And what I might point to in that is I might point to the law, that's what Paul would have said. Look at all that I've done blameless according to the law we might point to some sort of moral living some sort of performance or some sort of spirituality or religion or here's one of my favorites like i might point to some level of sanctification not like that man over there clearly ahead on the scale from that man or i know the right kind of doctrines and things i'm supposed to know so surely that means that i'm right before god and and john newton said this so well like self-righteousness can feed on doctrines as well as works and we have all these things that we're using. And we're trying to build a resume before God to show Him why on that day we can have right standing with Him, that we are righteous in His sights. And whatever it is we point to, if it includes the "I" or "my, my own efforts, My own strength, my own power, my own work, my own wisdom, my own knowledge, my own anything, my own performance, my own religion, my own spirituality. If it includes any of that, here's what Paul says it is. Not submitting to God's righteousness, verse 3. For many, maybe including many of us here today, one of the first gospel responses, one of the first ways that the gospel has to break through has to come repenting, from our own righteousness. That's the same place that Paul began. All his zeal, all his pursuit of righteousness through the law, all his living where he thinks he's being he's establishing his righteousness for God by living according to the law, it left him bankrupt before Jesus. He had to count it lost when he faced Righteousness in the flesh. We have to realize that we cannot have our own righteousness, hold our own righteousness, claim our own righteousness, and receive the actual righteousness of God at the same time. You can't hold both. You can't claim both. You can't have both. You can establish your righteousness on your own, or you can receive His. Those are the options. And here's the good news, that God doesn't want any of us to establish our own righteousness. He wants us to receive the righteousness that he provides. Amen. That's a righteousness that is by faith, chapter 9, verse 30. And church, that is such good news. Verse 31 and 32, Israel pursued it, pursued it, and they didn't reach it. And why didn't they reach it? Because, verse 32, they went after it as if it were based on works. And if it were based on works, here's what Paul says, that's bad news. You can keep going and keep going and keep going, and you're never closer to attaining it than when you first began. That's bad news. It didn't succeed because it cannot be attained by works. Pursuit of righteousness by our own work Our own efforts, our own merits, our own performance, our own religion, our own spirituality is bad news. It's a spinning of the wheels. It's the the stone rolled to the top of the hill only to see it roll back down and us, go back down and get it again. We're just as condemnable before God as when we started this whole effort anyway. Israel, they weren't attaining the righteousness in their pursuit of it because they were trying to seek it by their own efforts. And establish their own righteousness. They were seeking it by works. They were stumbling. And Paul says, if you're going to follow that, you're never going to attain it. I love the lyrics. Jesus paid it all. It ends, when before the throne, I stand in him complete. Oh, there's an I statement, so we've got to be careful. But what does he say? When I stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips will still repeat. What are they repeating? He paid it all. It wasn't me. I did some of it, he did some of it. No, he paid it all. Not me, not my work, not my effort. Him, him, or rock of ages. Man, there's this, we're going to soar to this world unknown when we stand before this throne. What what are we going to say? We're still going to say, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in the... art. Right, there's an appropriate way to put me and myself in on this righteousness is to say, it cleft for me. Like, I can only be here because I'm, I'm hiding away in this cleft that is the rock of ages. Let me hide myself. That's where I find myself in this equation of salvation. It's only hiding. And he covers it all. How different is that from the songs that you think of when you think of on that day? Of what you might boast do you include an I or a my or a me it's only in right relation to that rock of ages that the word me and I actually come out in the equation rightly and that rock Paul makes no mistakes is a a rock that is a rock of ages but it is also a stumbling stone and that explains Israel's spiritual state Paul explains Israel's stumbling as a pursuit of righteousness by their own works, as a pursuit to establish their own righteousness, and in that he says they were stumbling. That that stumbling wasn't just a stumbling over their own works. Paul puts a face on it. Verse 32 and 33, he says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, but as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul has been explaining Israel's spiritual state in chapter 9, right? With God's eternal purposes, his purpose of election and his calling. It's not based on human will or exertion. It's on God who will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He's speaking of his freedom as God to be God and serve as this God who has his sovereign purposes that he works out because he is God. That's how he's been explaining it so far. Here, what God does is he's the one who places the stone. And that stone that he places is a stone of stumbling. It is rejected. Israel comes to the stone and they trip over it. They reject it. They refuse it. They lack belief in this stone. And so here's what's going on in chapter 9 and the start of chapter 10 is that God's purpose of election stands and Israel is responsible for their unbelief, for trying to establish their own righteousness by their works. God sovereignly places the stone and Israel is accountable for stumbling and unbelief. Both of those are happening here, and they're just different angles of getting at the same idea. Peter brings this out more sharply, I think, when he quotes a similar passage, the Isaiah passage of the stone. In, In 1 Peter chapter 2, here's what it says. Peter says, quotes the scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. The stone that the builders rejected, right? And God is the one that laid this stone. It's a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Both of those things explain Israel's spiritual state. And one of those things is not more true than the other thing. In fact, we can say that both of those are true all the time at the same time. The stone that they were stumbling over was a rock of offense. That stone was placed by God, but they were rejecting the stone that was placed by God. And there's the mystery. But here's what we know. That stone is right in the middle of their path. He stands in the way of their goal for righteousness as they're trying to seek it, to attain it on their own and establish their own righteousness and attain it by work. They're going to have to go one way or the other. He's right in the middle of the path. Right? You want right standing with God, Jesus is the stone that is right in the middle of the path. You're going one way or another. You're going to establish your own and trip over the stone or you're going to do something different. And here's what Paul says. Chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end. Over and over again in Jesus' ministry. The, specifically the religious elite. The Jewish elite. They are the ones who stumble on the rock over and over again. Jesus. He heals on the Sabbath. And what do they say? How dare you? Jesus says, well I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Don't stumble there. They, He goes to the temple. He cleanses it because it's a den of robbers. And they say, what gives you the authority? He says, well, you tear down the temple, I'll rebuild it. I'm the temple. They kept stumbling over and over and over again. In chapter 5 of the book of John, he says, you're searching the scripture. And you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life. Let's just stop right there and admit that that's actually a pretty good hunch. And that maybe we think the same thing. If I just look long enough and hard enough, if I just do these things, then that's going to be enough. And here's what he says. Those scriptures, if you just take them and you don't go further to where it's going, to this rock, then you miss it because those scriptures, what do they do? They bear witness to me. There's not life in the scripture apart from Jesus Christ. (laughs) There's life in the scripture as much as you see them as bearing witness to him. He, chapter 10, verse 4, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end and the goal. Like, he is both of those things. He's saying it all pointed to Christ. The law was not meant to be pursued for righteousness, to establish a righteousness of our own. The law was meant to point forward, and the law pointed forward, and then it showed the righteousness of God, his character, his nature, what he's like, and it showed, in light of that, how much man was lacking, how much they didn't have any righteousness on their own to claim before God. It showed how bankrupt and barren they were in the righteousness category. But in that is the mercy of God that it shows that you have need. And what is that need for? That need is a need for God himself. It was not meant to bring one righteousness, but to bring one to the end of themselves so they might look to God for their righteousness. And what does God provide? He provides that righteousness. He provides right standing apart from the law. Chapter 3 again. We go right back and we look and... This righteousness of God is manifest, is made known apart from the law. Although the law bears witness to it, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is the end of the law. He's saying you're, you're no longer under this Mosaic covenant where you need to seek this righteousness any longer. It has come to an end in Christ Jesus. There is a new covenant now. He is the one who has fulfilled this law. He's the goal of it. He fulfilled it by perfectly carrying it out himself so that God could look to him and be satisfied that the law's demands have been carried out fully. But if you have faith in him, he can also not just be just, he can be the justifier. Jesus fulfills the law, and so now relationship with God is available through him by faith. If we would trust in him, now we can have right standing with God, not through law-keeping, but through faith. And it's this very reality that they were stumbling on. That Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. But you've got to love how Paul describes this here. They were stumbling, and yet, what does he do? In chapter 9, verse 33, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but whoever and whoever, love the whoever there, keep that pronoun active in your life. Think about that pronoun. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Or in chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Whoever believes, everyone who believes, right standing with God is for those who not pursue it on their own and in their own efforts, but who believe in Christ Jesus. It's that belief that Israel refused. That's what Paul's looking at and he's saying they've refused it. It's Christ, he says, they were rejecting. And that's the way it was intended because he's a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. But notice that he is more than that in the same place. The, the place where he is a place of stumbling and a rock of offense is also the same place where there is an invitation to everyone and whoever. He is not just a stumbling stone, but at the same place he can be a cornerstone. He is not just a rock of offense, but in the same place he can be the rock for which you build your entire life on. Again, I love how Peter puts it. Quoting the similar passage, same passages from Isaiah I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen, precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He says if you build your life on this rock, it's the rock that's not going to fall apart. You build your life here and you won't be put to shame. Shame, that's a word that's attached to guilt. And before God... We don't have a righteousness to claim on our own. There is shame. There is guilt. The only way to get outside from underneath that is to fall under the rock and to build your righteousness on that. And he says, all who build on that cornerstone will not be put to shame. You build your righteousness, you build your life, you build your resume before God on anything else, and it's going to fall apart. We can see this in things that shake us, right? When things shake, you start to realize what's at the very foundation. Think about how life and death, these moments come at us, and they start shaking the very foundations of our life, and they're helpful in some ways in showing us what's actually there. What are we building our life on and basing our resume on before God? When those hard moments come in, you get shaken, and you see what's actually going to hold. And here's what we know in the Scripture is true, that if you build your righteousness on anything but this cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and Him alone... Things are going to start shaking and they're going to wobble and topple. But Jesus is the cornerstone that you build your life on and everything else can shake and topple over and it will always, he will always stand. Amen. He's the end of the law for righteousness. All else fails, so whoever should believe in this Christ will be one who is not put to shame. So he's the end of the law. So he can say things like, are you weary? Are you burdened? Why don't you come to me and find rest because I'm the end of the law. You're you're pursuing it by the law and you're never going to be unweary. Always going to be weary. In me, there's rest. Lay down your pursuit of righteousness by works. He's the goal of the law. Whoever would believe in him could receive his righteousness and rest. Receiving is seeing our need of his righteousness because our own righteousness has continued to fail. And resting is a saying, his is enough. Nothing to prove anymore. Nothing to add anymore. I'm accepted fully in him. So to whoever who will believe, believing is receiving the righteousness of Christ and resting in it. I like Luther's comments when he says this. If I tried to fulfill the law myself, I could not trust in what I had accomplished. Neither could it stand up to the judgment of God. So I rest only upon the righteousness of Christ, which I do not produce but receive. And God the Father freely giving it to us through Jesus Christ. The rock, friends, does not have to be a rock that causes us to stumble or a rock of offense. It can be a cornerstone. It can be the thing in your life that you build everything else on. It can be the righteousness that you put before God. And you say, well, actually, I don't have anything to claim on my own. All to him I owe. He paid it all. I'm pointing to him. He's the cornerstone. And so the question then is, this is for whoever. Then, What are you receiving as your righteousness? What are you resting in as your righteousness? What would you point to as your righteousness? And then ask this, will it hold? Can it hold if something shakes? Can it hold when death comes? It is appointed for every man to die once, and after that comes judgment. What will hold under that judgment? Here's what I think Paul would say. Fall on the rock, or the rock will fall on you. He stands in the way of you, having right standing with God, or He is your right standing with God. So ask the questions. If you have trusted in Jesus, relying fully on Him for salvation, that He is your righteousness, remember not your own efforts in that, but His. And One of the ways we do that is we we remember with one another because we need one another in this battle. And we come to the table of the Lord's Supper where we're reminded of Jesus' Body broken, blood poured out, and we are in this taking of this meal together, claiming that as our own. What he did is now mine. I don't have a place at the table by my own efforts. It's not by my will or exertion, but by God and by his righteousness that I come. But he does say come. He has achieved it. And so if you're his, it's no humble thing to stay away. The humble thing is to receive it and rest in it. One way to do that is by taking this meal together and looking around and remembering, look what Christ has done. He is a cornerstone for so many. He is their righteousness. If you're not believing in Jesus, please don't take this meal. Question yourself, what am I looking to, what am I pointing to that will hold under the judgment of God? And ask, is it going to last? And I would just propose to you that nothing but the righteousness of Christ will. So, so, he says to you, whoever believes will not be put to shame. Repent and believe in Jesus. Let's pray together.
2: Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would break our hearts for the lost. It wasn't Paul's idea to be tormented over the thought of his fellow Israelites going to hell. Lord, it was your desire that he would be broken for his kinsmen, and some did believe. But Father, we We know that even as christians we struggle with self-righteousness we at times allow our flesh that dead man to affect how we think how we measure ourselves lord it's so tempting to almost delight in the lostness around us it makes us feel better about the good things that we perceive ourselves doing and it's wrong Lord, I pray that we would be reminded daily of the fact that you did it all. That where there is righteousness found in us, it has been imputed because of what you did. And that Father, we have been called to proclaim the message that you will use to open the eyes of the lost to help them to see who the cornerstone is, that they may fall over that stone, Lord, and fall onto that stone, I should say, and not stumble over it. God, help us. Help us to to see the opportunities that we all have in our workplaces, in our homes, with our families and friends, on airplanes. God, we have so many opportunities Break our hearts for those who don't know you. Strengthen us in our own understanding of the gospel that that we may keep self-righteousness where it belongs, in the grave. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.